everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except for sometimes when we go to the year 2022 and take continuity that is set in the 1960s. Uh, today, when we get there, we're going to be uh, reviewing the fourth story in the giant-sized Gwen Stacy book that came out just a couple of months ago, actually. Uh, we are going to cover a couple Spider-Man stories in the podcast in a row. Last episode, I was thrilled to be uh, joined by Sarah Brunstad as we reviewed uh, a comic book called Spider-Man X-Men Number 1, written by Christos Gage. And we're going to be reviewing another book written by Christos Gage today. So we'll talk about that as we get a little further into the podcast. I am thrilled to welcome three returning guests to the podcast, all of whom are from the incredible Aconite Books family, uh, where we get to read stories set in a universe slightly adjacent to our Marvel universe and read incredible stories written by incredible people about incredible characters. Uh, I'm going to let each of my guests introduce themselves, let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, and the Intro question today is very simply, what do you love about Gwen Stacy? It's going to be a very Gwen Stacy kind of day on an X-Men podcast today. Uh, let's start with my friend, Marcia Rockwell. How are you, Marcy? I'm doing well, Chad. I hope you are as well. Um, our listeners might know me from the other podcast that I was on. Uh, that one was kind of heavy, so <laughs> I'm glad to be able to do this one, which I, I think will be a little bit lighter, but spoiler alert somebody dies <laughs> <laughs> um i recently had uh, my first book for marvel uh for aconite come out called sisters of sorcery which uh featured clea uh some people call her clea strange but in the continuity of my story she's divorced from dr strange so i don't use that last name um <clears throat> But I have also written books for um, Dungeons and Dragons in their uh, Eberron setting. Um, I've written for X-Files. I've written for um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, Mafia 3. I do a lot of tie-in work. Um, and then I did an original novel with my husband uh, called Seven Psychos, which was Psychos versus uh, Zombies. Yeah, totally set in Phoenix. Uh, and we're about to bomb the city, which, you know, uh, a lot of people in Arizona think is a really good idea. And I don't know why, but <laughs> um, what I like about Gwen Stacy, well, I have to confess that I don't know that much about Gwen Stacy. My first knowledge of her was the storyline where she dies, <laughs> you know, so uh, I thought it was fun to read about her when she's alive and she is, you know, her own person, not dependent on her relationship with Peter Parker. Um, she sees, excuse me, can't talk today. She seems, um, you know, spunky. I like that. She's a, she's a great character. We'll talk about her a lot today, of course. And Marcy, what are your preferred gender pronouns? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll go by she, her. Phenomenal. And then uh, for those of you that are listening, Marcy was first on the podcast where we recorded uh, first the trial of Mesmero and Mastermind. And then we had that follow up sexual assault panel, which was heavy and dense, but also wonderful and healing. And Marcy uh, was one of our guests on that panel, but uh, she is our featured guest today. So I'm thrilled to have you back, my friend. Uh, let's go to uh, Tristan next. Hi. Hello. 
always happy to be back on this lovely podcast with this lovely host. Um, yes, I am Tristan Palmgren. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, and I've written thus far four books for uh, for the Aconite Marvel series. And uh, mostly in the, uh, the Aconite Heroines line with books about Domino, uh, Outlaw, and most recently, uh, Squirrel Girl, my absolute favorite of the Marvel Comics continuity, um, and also uh, uh, set, uh, also a story set uh, on, an, on an underwater station uh, featuring X-Men and some vampire merfolk, uh, The Siege of X-41, which um, also just came out recently. In fact, uh, in the past 13... 14 months I've had three of those books come out not that I've not not that I've uh, written them all in that uh, in that span of time but it, it's it's been a busy past few weeks um, or past few months rather you've got a lot going on my friend uh gender pronouns and what do you love about Gwen Stacy uh faith them and what I what I love most about her is Especially in these issues, is that as um, I have a soft spot for characters who just march into danger regardless of the odds, um, knowing that they're going to make that um, they could be stomped at just about any time, but they're going to make it just troublesome enough for their opponents that they're not going that they're not going to bother doing that. Um, so, so in these issues, she does things like march right into Kingpin, into the Kingpin's office and confront him directly <laughs> without backup. Uh, and this could very easily have gone have have gone poorly, but she knew that she was she had just enough leverage in that moment that uh, it was not going to be worth uh, worth his, <laughs> worth his trouble to uh, to to crush her. And she got what she knew it. Um, she got what she wanted, um, and she, and she was al always confident, at least outwardly, every step of that way. Gwen Stacy and Squirrel Girl would be amazing friends. <laughs> and then lastly, let's go to my friend Carrie Harris. Hi, Carrie. Hey, Chad. Um, I'm Carrie Harris. My pronouns are she, her, and I am another Aconite novel. I've kind of hopped all around, though. Um, so I've done X-Men, I did Ghost Rider, um, I, I did Shadow Avengers, um, so I've, I've done a you, whole You did Witches. Hmm? Don't forget Witches. Yep, yep, Ghost Rider and the Witches. Um, and so uh, I also write my own stuff, um, you know, in my spare time, haha. -ha. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if I said this, my pronouns are she, her. And uh, the thing that I like about Gwen is, of course, this kind of depends on who's writing the character because characters do change a little bit depending on whose hands they're in. But uh, my favorite Gwen Stacy is capable Gwen Stacy. Like she doesn't fall into that trope where you are uh, the love interest of a superhero, at least at some point. Um, and therefore, even if you're intelligent, and capable, you turn into a simpering idiot anytime something goes wrong and you need to be saved. Um, yes, yeah, she needs help because everybody needs help sometimes, but she's capable. She can do things and she's intelligent. And uh, I, I love that because um, 
it feels real. Gwen Stacy is not an X-Men character, but there are X-Men connections. We're going to explore some of those today. But the reason we're covering this particular issue, it came out just a few months ago, but it does feature the 60s X-Men uh, in a Gwen Stacy issue, which we'll get to. Uh, we do love a character who has a lot of sass and spunk. I think back to like the pilot episode of Mary Tyler Moore, where Lou Grant is like, you've got spunk, kid. I hate spunk. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Uh, we love we love a character who has a lot of spunk. And, and Gwen Stacy is certainly one of those. Uh, despite having been dead in the comics for so many years, she is so often utilized and so often seen. And in the last decade or so, as Spider-Gwen, which is an alternate universe version of Gwen Stacy, she has risen to popularity, where there was literally a, an entire series recently written about a team of alternate Gwen Stacy characters teaming up. There's a, a, a Wolverine Gwen Stacy and a Thor Gwen Stacy, etc. They all team up and fight crime together. Uh, so she's an enormously popular character, which is why we got this series exploring the uh, original 616 Gwen. We'll get there in a little while. Uh, lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I should have said that minutes ago. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm going to begin our podcast today with a very sobering statement. We are recording this on November 21st. Uh, just this last weekend, there has been a lot of rough news, uh, but particularly for our LGBTQ community, uh, the city of Colorado Springs, uh, there was a club attacked, uh, and there has been anti-gay and anti-trans legislation passing and uh, an uptick in hate crimes. And uh, we're not going to release this for a couple of weeks after recording, but for all of those who listen and uh, we try to create a safe space here. And I think it is important to acknowledge when things like this happen and how they affect us. So uh, make sure you're taking care of yourselves, make sure you are safe and well and okay. Um, we have friends of this podcast who are queer, who are trans, who are drag queens. Uh, we, uh, we love and support each of you and we will continue to do our best to create this sense of safety and community um we've also got this weird time where twitter doesn't feel safe for a lot of people it's a it's a weird time uh we're going to release this on december 8th so uh just i don't even know what's going to happen in the world between now and then but i wanted to make sure to out loud acknowledge all of those things but if it's okay we're going to set aside and just be nerdy and uh comic booky for the next uh, few hours uh, I am thrilled to uh, be friends with uh, these three wonderful people. Uh, Tristan and Marcy have been on my, excuse me, Tristan and Carrie have been on my podcast a number of times. Marcy, when you came on the first time, I was just getting to know you, but I have since had an opportunity to read your book, Sisters of Sorcery, front to back. It is so well-researched and so wonderful. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book and where it came from to begin. And then I want to talk to you about Marvel magic for a few minutes, because you did such a good job exploring the corridors of Marvel magic in your book. Well, okay. Um, so... I originally pitched uh, an Agatha Harkness book to um, Aconite uh, because she was really popular with WandaVision uh, having come out recently. That just came out of um, nowhere. The, the rise of popularity of that character was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, uh, Catherine Hahn did an amazing job, and I'm sure that's why uh, she became so popular because, you know, otherwise she she didn't do a lot of cool magic in that show but um i guess she's getting her own show now so that's that's awesome 
But the Agatha Harkness in the comics is not that same Agatha Harkness, as you all know. She is much older, and she has been around for a really long time. Um, and in comics continuity, they nobody knows how old she is. They say that she was around for the fall of Atlantis. Um, and uh, I don't think we see enough older female protagonists in fantasy uh, in most genres actually but I think fantasy has a real problem with it uh, so I wanted to do an Agatha Harkness book so people could see how badass older women can be um, and we went back and forth for a little while and they're like well let's write a Clea book instead so I pivoted and I was able to add uh agatha in and also um elizabeth two young men who was uh the other character that i originally pitched uh and i wanted to tell her story because she is indigenous um from the Sitsina nation i think i'm pronouncing that correctly apologies if not um and <clears throat> i know that uh, she originally came out with alpha flight which was a while back and you know marvel has not had a super great history with portraying indigenous characters accurately and sometimes not very respectfully and um i myself am chippewa metis and so i wanted to kind of correct that if i could so um that's and then margali sardos is just kick-ass so i wanted to put her in there too so that's how we got that wonderful uh foursome plus there's another character in there that is such a deep dive <laughs> into comics that uh probably only chad knew about her beforehand holly ladonna <laughs> <Holly Ladonna, laughs> yeah. um and then the magic uh you know magic is kind of all over the place in uh marvel you know, they have Dr. Strange, who sometimes uh, uses incantations and uh, sometimes they rhyme and sometimes they don't. You know, he has this set of uh, powers that he calls on. Uh, but in the older comics, he used to call on Dormammu, Dormammu and Umar, who are like his enemies. So it's kind of weird. Um, and then they have in the past shown Agatha Harkness in, you know, a typical pentagram with uh, candles at the corners, you know, so they're, they've been all over the place. And so I wanted to, you know, kind of try and highlight the different ways in which they use magic. Um, and I didn't really have any restrictions on what I could do with the magic as long as I, you know, made it fun and actiony and plausible they were good with it so that's what i did i had fun <laughs> so uh for a lot of people we we see the x-men universe as part of the wider marvel universe and there's connections with characters all over the place but your book features characters that are very x-men adjacent uh clea is probably the most adjacent i want to say out loud one of my favorite books outside of x-men is the defenders which i talk about on this podcast i got to interview jm de mateus uh, Clea is a character that I, I adore. I often talk about profiles that I maintain for the Marvel handbooks or the Marvel appendix, and Clea is one of those. Uh, I love her. She's getting a ton of focus 
Uh, Jed McKay is doing a whole series about her right now called Strange, and it's so fun. And she is powerful and incredible and complicated. Uh, Clea, let's begin with her before we jump to some of the other characters, is indelibly associated with Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is off in the dark dimension and there's this kind of strange silver haired woman that he brings back and they end up having this romance and she becomes an integral part of the Defenders that's kind of worked in and out. Ultimately in the comics, she becomes the leader of the dark dimension. She's the daughter of Umar the Unrelenting, who is the sister of Dormammu, who has fought the X-Men multiple times and who Carrie Harris featured in one of her books as a villain. Uh, Dormammu is a very powerful character who's often uh, fighting Doctor Strange, of course, but has uh, fought the X-Men a few different times. So Umar is often leading rebellions. I'm sorry, Umar. Clea is often leading rebellions and trying to defeat Dormammu, leading rebel forces, uh, and, uh, and then kind of popping in and out of the Marvel Universe whenever there's a Doctor Strange story to tell that she needs to be part of. Uh, it was wonderful to see her as a featured character in your book. Tell me a little bit about your research uh, of this character and uh, how you chose to tell her story. You did such beautiful work with her. Oh my God, I read so many comics. <laughs> I have stacks of them behind me. You can't see them, but... Um, I had to go on eBay and go on, you know, what, just all these different sites to find older comic books because um, I am a real stickler for trying to, uh, yes, this is like uh, Earth 618, not Earth 6, <laughs> not Earth 6, 16, but I wanted everything to be as close to continuity as comics continuity, I should say, as possible. And in as much as there is continuity, because, you know, sometimes it's just all over the place. But um, so I went back and I got uh, her very first appearances. Um, I read through all of her uh, various rebel uh, issues, um, a lot of the Defenders one. I was, actually was a huge Defenders fan growing up. Um, I loved her and, and Valkyrie and Hellcat. They were some of my favorite characters. So, um, <clears throat> Clea, not so much actually, which is kind of weird that I would wind up writing a book about her. On a, but, on a personal level, it's my it's my hope that you found my extensive Clea profile online and used it and it says written by chat at the bottom but we didn't even know each other <laughs> you know your profiles on a couple of characters i think um were so helpful because i read up on way more than the, the characters you see in the book right um because i had to figure out who to put in the book sure, sure. so i had to figure out who was available right in the time period where this book is occurring. Um, <clears throat> so I had to find a period in continuity where none of these characters appeared in any other books. So that, that was fun. Um, but I don't know, I didn't like uh, the portrayals that I had seen of Clea. Um, and, and this was prior to uh, the Strange uh, series coming out. Right, uh, when I was starting to write this book, um, and even uh, after I had turned it in, I don't think the book had been published yet. Uh, the comics preceded the book's publication, but not its writing. 
Um, but in most instances, uh, certainly the early instances, she was just a submissive, uh, you know, unsure of her, herself. And I, I just hated that because even at the beginning, she had power. You know, she was, a, she's half Baltine, right? She, it, her mother is a goddess. You know, she has inherent power. She is made of magic. You know, uh, arguably, she only ever needed to be shown how to use it. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't like the way she was portrayed. And I wanted to show her as the way I thought she should have been portrayed as a strong, confident woman who knows her stuff and knows uh, what she needs to do, has a sense of responsibility and, you know, knows right from wrong and tries to do the right thing. Something all three of you do really well is to build in very emotionally complex women into your into your characters. Tristan, your 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 Domino's great, but your Outlaw is my favorite. Carrie, the interplay with the witches that you use in your book, uh, and and Marcy, the way that your magic characters interweave with each other—the resentment, the sarcasm, the frustration, the lack of faith—and then the ability to kind of team up at the end. I love this idea of fully realized female characters all interacting with each other. Uh, beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, Tristan, you had a question. Go ahead. I just wanted to pipe in to say one of my favorite parts of writing these books is finding characters like that, who you can see facets of that just sparkle, who um, haven't really had a chance to show that to have those facets be at the center of a story and take those facets and write about them. I love, uh, loved in uh, particular doing that. Chad, you and I just had a conversation uh, for a Patreon episode about Wallflower. Mm -hmm. um, this, she was very much one of those characters to me. Love her. Thank you for that. You made me love her. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's one of my favorite things as a writer, but also as a reader is those characters, you know, and, and actually kind of comes back to that whole Gwen Stacy question too. You know, it's a character who's normally the supporting character, the one who needs saved, the one who doubts, the one who questions, um, despite the fact that they were capable before the hero showed up. Now they're just dry washing their hands and going, oh no, what do we do? Um, and, and so that was one of my favorite things about sisters of sorcery was to see them be the main character um and all be capable all of them starting annoyed with holly ladonna but learning to trust her over time as an example i yeah i think i think a lot of people are this way i mean as much as i love spider-man i love betty brandt in the 60s even more or or gwen stacy as much as i love captain america bernie rosenthal is one of my favorite characters in comics uh, Doctor Strange is great, but Clea is who I always wanted to see uh, as examples. Now, in X-Men, we get the introduction of Alpha Flight it, early on in Claremont and John Byrne's run, which includes characters from Canada. And they created a whole bunch of, a whole team of people from kind of different areas of Canada. We have French-Canadian members and we have, uh, there's there's Puck and there's Sasquatch. And there's all these characters that tie into different parts of, of uh, Canadian lore. And then they bring in the character Shaman who is an indigenous character, Michael Two Young Men, who is a doctor, 
who has a magic pouch he can reach inside and pull anything out of. Later in the uh, John Byrne launches the Alpha Flight series and introduces the character Talisman, who is Shaman's daughter. Her name is Elizabeth, uh, and she is kind of forced into this role by having to wear a talisman and kind of against her will. And she becomes this very powerful magic character who is not often used. I love her, but your book made me love her more. What is it about Talisman that spoke to you, Marcy? Well, again, you know, I <clears throat> I didn't think that she had been portrayed um, as, accu as accurately as um, she could have been a uh, shaman either. Uh, just want to say that shaman is a really lazy uh, character name for an indigenous character yeah. um and actually not a lot of nations call their medicine people shamans anyway so i don't know if the if the sarsi which is what they were called at the time or uh that Sitsina use that term, but I would be surprised if they did. Um, so I was already annoyed. <laughs> but um, I also was kind of drawn to the fact that she didn't want to be a superhero. And she hated her dad, right? She had severe abandonment issues, which I could relate to. Um, and it, she kind of had to go on this journey her her dad failed her multiple times and i don't think that the comics ever really addressed what that how that would make her feel right other than oh well she would be mad about it well yeah she would be mad about it but she had a whole life as an archaeologist excuse me an archaeology student um, she was studying archaeology in college before this role was thrust on her. And then even after, you know, um, after her father died, then she was forced to take on the role of the spiritual leader of her tribe, which also wasn't necessarily a role that she wanted. Um, but she, you know, she took it on because it was her responsibility. So, um, you know, she, I thought she was just a really good way to kind of examine uh, how that feels when you, you have a responsibility to do something that you don't want to do. <laughs> and it was also, this book is really a lot about uh, parent-child dynamics. And hers was a little bit different in that it was a father-daughter dynamic, um, whereas all of the other ones are mother-child dynamics. Um, so I thought that would also be a nice little contrast against um, everybody else's stories. The other characters that you feature uh, in your book are X-Men adjacent in that they are related to the Scarlet Witch, who is enormously X-Men adjacent. We've got Agatha Harkness and we've got Holly LaDonna, who is a character who becomes the apprentice of Agatha Harkness in the second volume of The Vision and the Scarlet Witch. Uh, your, your portrayal of her is just delightful. You, uh, you write uh, Agatha Harkness as extraordinarily kind of creepy <laughs> and manipulative, which is perfect for her. Uh, my favorite character from your book, though, if I had to choose, is Margali Sardos, who is very X-Men adjacent. Margali Sardos is 
a uh, 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 the adopted mother of nightcrawler so after mystique throws baby nightcrawler off the waterfall she's the she's the witch woman who brought nightcrawler into kind of her circus family she's also the biological mother of amanda sefton who is the character day tripper sometimes called magic she's frequently portrayed as an x-men foe uh it was so surprising to see her in a featured role here tell me about uh tell me about your use of margali You know, I don't know why I settled on her originally. I don't remember now, but as I read more about her, I really liked, um, it was a, a mother-child dynamic that you don't often see in that Margali in a lot of ways is really out for herself. And if that means that, you know, she has to betray her kids once in a while, yeah, she'll do it. Um, but if somebody else hurts her kids, man, they are going down. And I just, I think that's kind of a, a, a great, you know, obviously mothers shouldn't betray their children, but the fact that, you know, <laughs> she goes after anybody else who does it. I, I found that a really, another really interesting dynamic and a foil against you know, kind of the other ones. Well, and in a book with a lot of complicated women, it's good to have someone who's a little bit self-absorbed and uh, kind of driven to self-purpose. And the way she relates to their characters is uh, fantastic. Uh, Carrie, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, I think, well, she was my favorite character in this book and made me laugh out loud multiple times. But also I loved, um, she was actually what, be, what made me, uh, Marcy and I had a conversation about kick-ass, um, you know, middle-aged and older women. And for me, she is it because she's also complicated. You know, she, she doesn't have to be, um, you, you know, you either get the evil old witch trope or the saintly mom grandma trope. And she kind of straddles both worlds, which is so interesting. She's not, she's not all bad, but she's not all good either. Um, so I just love her. I love that. Uh, Marcy, can can you just give us an a, entire book of her? Could could we have that? <laughs> can I ask uh, for that? I I can try to pitch it. I don't know if they're going to go for it or not, but oh, I'll bring, I know how that goes. Bring, I tell them you asked for it. Bring okay. Nightcrawler and Amanda in. It'll be perfect. <laughs> That'd be phenomenal. Um, so I think I, there are some situations in which mothers should obey their children, just to pipe that in. Uh, for example, telling embarrassing stories to significant others. That is always good. <laughs> uh, I, I want to talk about the foes in your book just very briefly as well. Marcy surprisingly uses the incredible Alpha Flight villain, the Dream Queen, which I believe has she's making an appearance in the upcoming Steve Orlando Scarlet Witch series that's coming out in early 2023. Uh, as well as Plokta, who is a bizarre little character from an old obscure series uh, who creates mindless ones, uh, as well as one of my favorite Marvel villainesses, uh, Umar the Unrelenting, who canon, uh, one of my favorite Marvel trivia facts, she once fucked the Hulk. That's, <laughs> that's a thing that happened. <laughs> So I want to I want to focus a little bit on Marvel magic, and I I'm, I'm going to do some cool stuff with. Uh, I'm really excited as we get out of the '60s on my podcast to start delving into other spaces. You can already hear the passion in my voice for Alpha Flight and like Marvel magic and all these places that I'm really excited to take the pod as we get there. But Marvel magic works 
basically in one of three ways, if I'm way oversimplifying. Number one, you are a character who is connected to another realm somehow. And we see all kinds of realms, including the dark dimension, which is Clea, or Limbo, which is magic, or the Winding Way, which is Margali Sardos. And the rules of these places and how the magic is utilized is very different and how the characters can access these power sources. Second, you can really easily connect to some sort of god or entity, right? Doctor Strange is constantly drawing his spells by, by petitioning these entities from other realms. Uh, and we have uh, characters who are indelibly associated with certain ones, like Sidorak, connected to Juggernaut as a, as a particular example. And then third, you can have artifacts that are often imbued with various levels of power, which is where you get characters like Talisman or Shaman who have magical items that they use. The other category, which we're not going to cover, well, we actually can because Carrie's here. We have characters who are also connected to hell. <laughs> so you're using the dark hold or some sort of like hellish, but I guess that's kind of another realm. So it falls into that category. So uh, focusing on this very briefly, the way that you use magic differently for your four characters, Clea, for whom it's a birthright, uh, Elizabeth, who it's kind of thrust upon, Margali, who chooses to kind of devote herself to it. Uh, there's these different ways in which these characters are utilizing these levels of magic. And the way that you interplay the differences between those, it's almost like characters that have different mutant powers, uh, but they're accessing magic in different ways. Uh, I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on how you approached those power sources in your book. It's it's really well done. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, I, again, it was just... Uh, a way to to highlight the fact that there are different ways to use magic in the Marvel universe, and and one of them that you don't see a ton of, but um, I do think you left out is kind of a more traditional witchcraft, um, or I uh, maybe uh, kind of leaning more towards Wicca, and you might say that's calling on Gaia. Um, but, but there, yeah, there's like druidism and various levels of like earth entities. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, and I, I think it was Agatha Harkness who said that uh, there's magic anywhere. There's a planet, right? So like magic is inherent in the earth or, you know, wherever you are. You just have to figure out how to tap into it. And um, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a hedge witch. So, you know, I really, I liked, I wanted to bring that viewpoint in because I don't think we see it enough in the Marvel Universe. And when we do see it, it isn't always represented super accurately. Um, but it just was really interesting to me that, like, that... Uh, connection to magic is so different from like the way dr strange does magic because his magic is yeah he calls on gods but he also it's like a lot of study a lot of memorization you know it's it's very clinical right there he doesn't like if he's petitioning vishanti he doesn't have to uh you know get on his knees and weep and give a sacrifice or anything like that you know it's just hey dude can you send me some magic <laughs> you know 
Um, whereas with something more akin to witchcraft, you are developing, you know, there's an actual relationship with the earth, um, with the, the land around you. You're calling upon inherent magic uh, that, that exists and you're calling it up and it's more uh more visceral i guess and um that was one of the things i actually had clea kind of think about because she had trained under dr strange and then she was working with these women whose connection to magic was so different than hers um and i just it's just fascinating to me um and i don't think that you know obviously the people who originally started writing um the comics didn't get together and say, oh, let's let's have these three different ways of doing magic. You know, they, it just kind of evolved, which I think is is really interesting and cool. These three ways, which turn into hundreds of ways. And Carrie, let me right. toss that same question your way, because in your Ghostwriter Witches book, you have Jennifer Kale and Topaz and Satana, who all use magic very differently, as well as Ghostwriter, who's connected to hell through this entity. So it's kind of the, it's uh, different ways of using magic as well. Uh, how was your approach for that book? Yeah, it was really fun to read Marcy's because I think we had to come at it from two different directions. Marcy had a variety of magic users, uh, you know, uh, all coming together and having to figure out how to work together um, using wildly disparate points of view and, and that kind of thing. But for me, because I based... Um, uh, which is unleashed on the witches miniseries. The connection was already made, but also witches miniseries very explicitly says why those three were brought together. They needed celestial magic, hell magic, and um, human magic. And so each of the people in that triad represent something and brings something special to the table. So you already have a roadmap for for what for how they work together and for what each one is best at um so really all i had to do was kind of fill in the gaps for topaz because she didn't she barely existed um and so figuring out exactly what she does because she represents celestial um i i looked at it as bringing everybody together um you know, and, and creating balancing and creating peace. Um, but it was really funny, uh, fun to watch you, Marcy, because you had to do the exact opposite of what I had to do. I had to take a connection and threaten it, and you had to take no connection and create it. Build a team, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Marcy, you mentioned earlier that um, you wanted these characters to have fun with their magic. That's one of my favorite things to do with uh, with uh, empowered characters is to um, just let them be themselves uh, and use their powers in more ways than just the dramatic confrontations. Are there are, are there any examples uh, that you want to talk about from within these books, or, or um, is there anything that you can mention without without spoilers? Um, one thing that pops into mind is uh, almost immediately, um, I think uh, they split the party uh, at one point, a couple points during the book. And in one of the points, um, Margali and Elizabeth are together. 
and Margali casts the spell that turns one of turns a demon into like jelly. And Elizabeth is like, oh, that's so gross. <laughs> but Margali's just like, yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> so I don't know. I just uh, I thought it was kind of fun to play on uh, Margali's like i don't care it gets the job done i don't i don't care if you think it's gross and elizabeth's like oh, i i wouldn't have done that but okay you're right it gets the job done so we will get more into marvel magic as we move forward in the podcast we've done a lot of exploration into juggernaut and sidorax connection but as we get farther into the books we see a character named magic who's indelibly associated with Belasco limbo and the soul sword which also includes pixie we see uh, her practicing magic and apprenticing under Doctor Strange. She's an instructor at the Strange Academy. We see a lot of other characters who practice magic or are connected to magic or who use artifacts. Uh, and particularly, we see characters like Captain Britain uh, or uh, both Betsy and Brian who are powered through kind of magic sources and connected to these other places. Uh, I could give a, a dozen examples, but Teeny Howard in her recent Excalibur book, and she's now getting uh, ready to write, uh, she just did Knights of X and she's getting ready to write uh, Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock coming up, uh, has explored these concepts of Marvel magic particularly as they are associated with mutants, mutants forming mutant circuits, these adventures in Otherworld and how these characters use these powers. Apocalypse and Richter uh, had a really big storyline with their connections to different types of magic. Uh, and it's a, it's an interesting thing to see these realms utilized and these kind of concepts explored. Uh, so I have a huge episode on Marvel magic coming up in the next year. I won't announce the guest yet. I'm going to save it, but I've got some really cool stuff coming up in 2023, including a, a really cool podcast all about the rules of Marvel magic uh, that is already planned uh, a little ways out. Uh, so with that, I think we're going to transition into our book review today. This is the most recent book we've ever covered on the podcast. We're recording this in November. This book came out in September. Uh, I mentioned Spider-Gwen a little bit earlier who uh, sometimes goes as Ghost Spider. She is the Gwen Stacy from Earth 65, who has been part of the Spider-Verse events. She was so popular. She's a drummer. She's this kind of phenomenal character who's great. Uh, but she was so popular that she got her own series and has appeared on our Earth 616 a number of times. They've even made it kind of a staple of her character, where she lives on Earth 65, but she has an artifact that allows her to come to Earth 616 where she's going to college. So she's regularly in books and teaming up with characters. And kind of at the height of her popularity, Christos Gage, who we talked about uh, with a ton of respect in our last recording with Sarah Brunstad, uh, launched this series called Gwen Stacy, exploring our universe's Gwen Stacy uh, in a flashback series that takes us back to the days before she met Peter Parker. So to review that character very quickly, Gwen Stacy is the blonde, kind of blue-eyed daughter of George Stacy, who is a captain in the police force. He's also an ongoing character in the Spider-Man books. Uh, Spider-Man's dating Mary Jane, but then Gwen Stacy comes into the picture. Mary Jane's dating Harry Osborn. Gwen's dating Spidey or, or Peter Parker for a long time. There's a lot that happens with her character, but a lot of it's to drive the storylines of men, which is something that happens often. Her dad dies in a battle with uh, Dr. Octopus, and she struggles with that. And then she uh, she gets this guy named Miles Warren, the Jackal, who's kind of Spider-Man's Mr. Sinister, who's obsessed with her and keeps cloning her. Green Goblin kidnaps her and drops her off a bridge and Spider-Man tries to save her and grabs her foot with a web, but her neck ends up breaking. And that story is revisited three bajillion trillion times in every Spider-Man comic since because 
outside of losing Uncle Ben, losing Gwen Stacy is his biggest failure. So it's constantly revisited. Uh, when that story was told, the fact that they killed off a major character uh, and a love interest in such a way was something that was just infamous in the comic books at the time. And it's something they talked about for decades. It's kind of like letting Bucky die. It's a big deal. And it's this thing that they explored. Uh, so that Gwen Stacy has never come back. She is still dead in the books. And we are flashing back to her childhood when we review this comic book. The first two issues of this Gwen Stacy book were, uh, were coming out right as the pandemic hit. And then like a number of books that got canceled. So just a few months ago, they collected all five issues in a book called Giant Size Gwen Stacy, which is where you'll find this, all five issues. And we are specifically reviewing number four, which is the only one in which the X-Men appear. Uh, this is written by Christos Gage. The art is by Todd Nock and the editor is Nick Lowe. All three of these men we won't explore today, but all three of them have worked on the X-Men titles at various times in various capacities. So they may be well known. So to recap very quickly what has happened in this series in the first three issues, and I'm not going to delve into it super deep because this is not a Spider-Man podcast, although every character I'm about to mention is deserving probably of a Patreon episode <laughs> at the very least, because there's uh, you if you like X-Men soap opera, good Lord is Spider-Man a long running 60 year with multiple series soap opera to rival the X-Men with one future character. So in this particular series, Gwen Stacy is a teenager. She's running for student body president. She's friends with Harry Osborne at her school and she's never met Peter Parker yet. Her mother, Helen, has died. Her dad, George Stacy, is a police captain. She's dating a African-American quarterback named Darius Leclerc. Uh, George, her dad, gets shot in this complicated plot by the Kingpin that involves a bunch of classic Spider-Man villains, including the crime master, the big man, who's Frederick Foswell, who during this story has rehabilitated and is working at the Daily Bugle with J. Jonah Jameson. The characters, the Enforcers are here. There's the Lucky Lobo gang. Gwen is playing detective with a couple more classic Spidey characters named Yuri Watanabe, who's the character, the Wraith, as well as Gene DeWolf, who is uh, another fridged character who died very tragically in a previous storyline. Uh, so again, we're not going to delve super into any of these, but feel free to Google any of those names if you'd like to learn more. So basically all you need to know here, at the end of Gwen Stacy number three, Gwen has learned that her boyfriend Darius's dad, Michael Leclerc, is working with the crime master. And she's also intuited that the crime master is a guy named Nick Lewis, who is a, a criminal that's known. And that's kind of where this story picks up when we delve into issue number four, where the X-Men do appear, I promise, but we're going to talk about the connections with the X-Men as well. Uh, let's talk about the cover of this issue <clears throat> very quickly. We have this kind of gorgeous image. Uh, it is drawn by uh, Miguel Macedo. We see Gwen Stacy with her hand on her heart being shielded by Marvel Girl or Jean Grey, who is deflecting a bunch of pumpkin bombs in the sky away as the Green Goblin tosses them. Uh, beautiful, beautiful pinup style artwork. It's gorgeous. Uh, any comments on the cover? I love this cover. Um, I love the fact that the, the focus is on the heroines. Uh, we don't even see, I mean, you assume it's Green Goblin, it's Pumpkin Bombs. We don't even see him. He is not the point. They are the point. And they're not, um, they're not in what I'm going to call the boobs and butt pose. They're <laughs> twisted to show them both at the same time. They're not arched in, like, they're, they're actual uh, physically capable females. Um, so I love it. I would like to have it on my wall. 
it's just so lovingly rendered. Everything from uh, from the explosion and the the pumpkin bombs and their shockwaves to uh, to the to the lavish detail on uh, Jean Grey's original X Men uniform. Which sets this in continuity for us. We don't know exactly where this falls, but this is before Cerebro's working well. This is before the X-Men have met Spider-Man, and it's when they're in their earliest suits. So it's somewhere in that first uh, half dozen issues or so. I'm guessing before the X-Men time traveled and had their minds wiped, which we don't need to delve into today. <laughs> just, and just by looking at this art, you can see uh, how are sometimes uncomfortable those uniforms must be you can really get a feel like i said it's so detailed you can almost you can get a feel for the material um especially the um the glove especially the gloves and boots are almost like rain it's almost like a rain jacket here yeah yeah it's very 60s this this look on the cover by the way is gwen's most fashionable and famous look it's the outfit she died in uh, it's the black shirt, the green, the purple skirt, and the green jacket, which is what most people associate our Gwen in. Uh, Tristan, will you take the first five pages in the story? Tell us a little bit about what happens. Yeah, this is uh, exposition. First of all, uh, doing a lot of what you just did, uh, covering the uh, what's going on in the first issue and getting us set up and moving all of the uh, the pieces and the uh, the players into uh, into position for the, uh, the the dramatic showdown that's going to. Uh, going to come at this football game. So we open up with uh, Gwen Stacy talking with Mr. Foswell, the uh, kind of the uh, former villain who's uh, gone good and is trying to, uh, trying to, uh, is, is running the, uh, the crime beat at the Daily Bugle. She, in the past, in the last issue, figured out uh, the identity of a villain called the Crime Master, um, who, uh, He's very. It's a very interesting name. He he is a, a, an original Spider-Man villain who who died fairly quickly, and uh, I think he's probably appeared more often in uh, in nostalgia and callback and flashback comics than he ever did originally. <laughs> um, but she has just figured out who he uh, who he is and is. Uh, is telling uh, telling this reporter trying to uh, trying to get him exposed. Um, the, she doesn't have enough evidence um, to get him to uh, for the reporter to um, to go public with it yet, even though um, uh, he Foswell uh, believes her. But there's another wrinkle in that the way she found out uh, that. Uh, the crime master's identity is she saw him in the company of her boyfriend's father, uh, Mr. Leclerc, who um, who's apparently doing some uh, uh, some legal work for or legal or accounting work for him or something that would uh, that would implicate him in this whole mess. And that is the source of much of the drama in the uh, the upcoming episode or uh, excuse me, upcoming issue. Um, that she believes Mr. Leclerc is a good person. He seems like a good person. He got tangled up with, uh, in this somehow and stands to be hurt and lose a lot if um, uh, if what's going on uh, comes out. Um, so after setting all of this up, uh, we, uh, on the next page we transition to um, another of the players moving into uh, into position on the game board with Norman Osborne coming in, receiving a mysterious call from someone who is not yet identified to the reader, um, but uh, who's, who is tell, um, 
who, who, who uh, tells Norman that um, Robert Leclerc is about to turn on him, to turn on Norman and uh, the crime master uh, in their, their, uh, their, their criminal scheme. Gwen, uh, we don't see that, um, I'm sorry, I think I, I skipped over this part of the conversation with Foswell, uh, but Gwen and Foswell have cooked up a plan to get um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Leclerc to, uh, to, you know, turn state's evidence, um, to turn himself in and, um, uh, and hopefully get off with a lighter sentence. But doing this is going to be complicated because Mr. Leclerc is, be, is uh, going to be watched. Um, they can't do like she can't just go there and uh, and tell him this uh, or t uh, t uh, let him know that um, that uh, other people are aware of this and that he should turn himself in, um, turn himself in and try to get off um, on a lighter on a, uh, a lighter sentence. Um, that, so she is going to try to do that at this upcoming football game for which we see this uh, this gorgeous splash page for or at least a half splash page on the uh, the next page in which um gwen uh and uh and uh, the clerks are sitting together gwen's looking pensive because she knows what's going on um more and more of the pieces and players are moving into position norman and harry osborne are both coming in um Norman looking uh, looking appropriately sinister, um, and then at the very bottom of this page we have the X Men characters introduced. So Norman Osborn is, of course, one of the most reprehensible villains in comics. Mass murderer, the Green Goblin, who's easily top three Spider-Man foes. You know, Dr. Octopus, Nor uh, Green Goblin, Venom are the ones we always think of first. And he is going to prove it in this issue. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, this is when he, this is in his crazy phase where he's just blowing everything up and doesn't care about anything. He's currently appearing in a Christopher, Christopher Cantwell series where he's trying to be a hero because uh, all of his sins have been removed. It's a, a series called The Gold Goblin, which just started uh, the week before we recorded this, actually. It's, uh, it's a really interesting take. Uh, Zeb Wells is also using this character as an ally of Peter Parker in the current Spider-Man books. Uh, we'll talk more about him in just a minute. Uh, but he's, he's a great villain. He's so scary. Uh, Carrie, will you take us through this next part? Yes. Uh, like Tristan said, so we, we have the, um, the opening at the football game, and I, I think really the the key takeaway is that there are lots of people here um uh, like tristan said we've got gwen uh with her boyfriend's parents um we've got uh very specifically lets us know that peter parker is not there um so we don't have to worry about spidey just yet um but then you've got the osbournes and we have our first appearance in um regular people clothes of three x-men um and they're they're very excited to be there well hank is very excited to be there um and in usual rambling hank fashion he he spouts off about how great this is it's, a, it's an arena of battle a spectacle like no other He's, um, he is uh, 150% Hank, at least. Too much oh, Hank. yes. <laughs> all Hank all the time. 
Well, and if you, um, just as a recall, in Hank's Origins, which I believe is going to be the next episode of this podcast, Danny Laura and I are going to go over Beast's origin story. But he is a, he's a former high school and college football star where he was called a beast on the field. And that's where he gets his code name from. So, he, yeah, he loves this game. Oh, yeah. He's really into it. Um, and Gene is telling the boys to, to please keep their eyes on the prize. Um, they're there because um, they suspect that a member of the football team might in fact be Spider-Man and maybe is a mutant because as we've established, Cerebro's not working quite as well as it could be. Um, Gene's telepathic powers are also uh, a work in progress, let's say, um, for better or for worse. And so they know that there are mutants in the area, but there are just too many people. It's hard to to tell exactly who or where they are. Um, so they're going to watch the game because they're hoping to find uh, find the Spider-Man, hoping he's a mutant, and they want to recruit him to join the X-Men, which, for God's sake, we need a what if. <laughs> like, I want to see the end of this story where it it happened the way that they hoped. Um, so the game starts, and uh, Gwen can't take it anymore. She passes on some information to uh, to her boyfriend's dad because she's trying to protect him. She thinks he's in danger, um, and she she wants to do something about it. Uh, he's not too thrilled by the uh by the timing he wants to watch his kid play football um but he follows her uh, we don't exactly see what it is that she shows him uh, but we know it's it's something that suggests that he's involved in all of this and he he follows her it makes him take her seriously and then uh, as they're leaving uh the stands there is a wahoom, which is a very interesting sound. And we hear maniacal laughter as a certain green-skinned goblin comes uh, flying through the area. And there are lots of explosions and shit is about to go down. And he says, I'd like to thank you all for contributing to your favorite cause, me. <laughs> Just the level. <laughs> Um, I also want to read Beach's, Beach's, Beast's speech when he gets to the field. He he says, had I not matriculated to our august institution, twould be Henry Philip McCoy striding out upon the great iron. Too, too much, Hank. Dial it back. <laughs> Dial it back just to about 20 to 30 <laughs> percent. And then, uh, Marcy, will you take us through the next five? Tell us what happens in the big battle scene. So, um, in the last page of carries you see uh the green goblin uh throw a battering sorry they just look like batterings to me (laughs) (laughs) um and it looks like it's about to hit um darius's dad and then you see a little pinkish purplish glowy thing deflect it and all of a sudden there's jean gray in her outfit our costume and she's uh, protecting both Gwen Stacy and Darius's dad, who I think has a name, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, so Michael, that his name of, is Michael Leclerc. 
Thank you, Michael. That's much easier to say than Darius's death. Um, so she's deflecting uh, the bombs from hitting Gwen and Michael and tells them to go away. And she goes up, flies up into the air where she confronts the Green Goblin. And she tells him he's pathetic. And sorry. Um, <clears throat> He says, well, you're impressive, but you know, gotta take a lot of concentration to be able to doing what you're doing. So try doing that with a screaming tone in your ear. He's <laughs> he really leading hard into this goblin thing. <laughs> <laughs> he throws a toad in her face and it screams at her and I don't know, knocks her out of the sky, which <laughs> just was crazy. And I loved it. Um, and then, you know, Hank catches her because he, fair catch called and made for you know it has to be a or called for and made it has to be a, a football reference and then i love this part too um <clears throat> bobby says you are seriously the most ridiculous bad guy i've ever seen as he's attacking the uh, green goblin and i regularly fight a dude with a bucket on his head <laughs> i just love that that made me laugh out loud <sighs> um but then I'm not exactly sure what it is that uh, he pulls out of the Green Goblin pulls out of his bag, but uh, it makes it so Bobby can't breathe. And it's like a it's like a ghost shaped thing that turns into smoke. He like tosses a ghost, but it's like a smoke bomb. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not. Yeah, it's just weird. It looks I mean, kind of like we all the, have a ghost that that turns into a smoke bomb, right? right. <laughs> Every day. It, it reminds me weirdly, I don't know if you've seen it, but of the alien from Nope. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so then Beast takes a turn, he gets whapped. Uh, the X-Men have all been taken out. Um, <clears throat> the next page, uh, uh, the kids, the other kids are looking for their parents. Gwen is trying to get Michael to the cops that she trusts but she's like the cops are there and they're like no you go out there uh you'll be safe out there um we have to go and take care of the goblin and so they run away from everybody who can protect them and then all of a sudden there's smoke around them and gwen's like smoke oh no and she's like telling michael to run but it's too late the smoke is apparently the crime master and he shoots Michael, which was my spoiler alert. And, you know, he chooses not to shoot Gwen, which I think was sort of done more in service of the plot than really in service of what the character would actually have done at that point. So I kind of had to go eh, there, but okay. <laughs> It's not like, you know, comics ever do that. Uh, but uh, he lets her go. Darius's dad is dying. Um, he is about to tell her. Well, he wants, uh, Michael wants her to tell um, Darius that he's a good boy and that I love, you know, he loves, blah, 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 you know, all the stuff that you would say. And that's over to you. 
a little bit uh, a little bit earlier in the issue there's just a, it's a very quick one panel exchange but i think it's gorgeous when gene initially saves gwen from the pumpkin bombs gwen says you're one of the x-men and gene goes look mutants aren't the enemy okay and gwen goes no i didn't mean thank you that's all and gene has this look of just surprise on her face and says oh you're you're welcome uh, this idea of what the X Men are facing and how that's worked into the plot. Beautiful job, Christos Gage. That uh, that little that little moment there is is lovely. Uh, the X Men continue their fight with the Green Goblin, who is shooting all kinds of like finger lasers, and he's got like his little bat shaped goblin glider. He's all over the place. Uh, they are trying to help him contain, but he realizes his mission is not working, so he just dumps his whole arsenal of weapons on the stadium. And the X Men do everything they can to protect everybody, including Beast saving. Flash Thompson. Now, Flash Thompson does not have a lot of connections to the X-Men over the years, but he does later become the character Agent Venom and has teamed up with the X-Men a couple of times. So just uh, kind of a side note. The X-Men realize uh, Flash couldn't be Spider-Man. We don't know where he is. Our mission isn't going to work. So we got to run and get out of here. Uh, I, Bobby says five X-Men is more than enough anyway. Uh, Cyclops and Angel are presumably off on some other mission at this time, or I don't know, maybe Professor X is making him clean the toilets or something, but it was really fun to just see these three shine in this issue. Uh, as things wrap up and the damage is assessed, Darius finds Gene weeping over his father's body. And uh, ultimately, they break up over this in the next issue. The two cops, Gene DeWolf and Yuri Watanabe, close in and say, Gwen, what's wrong? She's sobbing. She says, everything went wrong. And the issue closes. Uh, issue five is also a great read. There's spoilers here if you haven't read it. But uh, basically what happens in the next issue, the crime master dies in a shootout. Kingpin makes an alliance with the Green Goblin to take over his territory. And then Gwen stomps into the Kingpin's office and confronts him directly in like the ballsiest move ever. And basically they come to an understanding that she's he's gonna leave her dad alone. And uh, she goes back and tries to make amends. That's kind of where things wrap up. Beautiful story, set in continuity, fits perfectly into the Spider-Man stuff. The X-Men appearing is a great surprise. It's a lot of fun. The battle sequence in particular is uh, my favorite piece here. So the X-Men are featured pretty prominently in this story. What are your thoughts on this, uh, on this issue or this storyline from the panel? What did you like or dislike? Was it a fun read for you? I would like to know why the X-Men just can just kind of leave without uh, without worrying about the Green Goblin anymore after that sequence is done. They're just on to chase Spider-Man after that. Uh, well, I think I think they were going on to chase him or perhaps to go back to the mansion. I think they decided not to go after Spider-Man. Like it's not worth our time. So as they're running away, Beast says, I believe the better part of valor is called for. My friends inevitably absent the actual culprit. The crowd will blame us for the chaos. Gene says, I guess we can rule out Thompson being Spider-Man. If he'd been here at all, he would have intervened. And Iceman says, unless he's a coward, either way, no big loss. Let's face it, 5X Men is more than enough. So I think they're realizing we better get out now before things get pretty complicated for us. Gotcha. Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for pointing out that exchange between uh, Gwen and Jean, because I actually had noted it when I read it the first time. And, um, you know, the X-Men are such a huge part of the Marvel Universe now that I had actually forgotten that there was a time when, you know, that they had been uh not liked and you know people blame them for everything and and so it was a nice uh it was a nice reminder just a real subtle way of of 
you know, reminding the reader that, hey, this isn't the the X-Men that you are used to now. This is how they used to be. This is what they used to have to deal with. And I, yeah. I, I thought it was really well done. Uh, the, the art from Todd Knock here is gorgeous. I adore his pencils. I think he's amazing. Uh, Carrie, what did you think? Yeah, um, I mean, that same moment was my favorite moment in the in the comic, too, especially since we're kind of looking at this through an X-Men lens. And it makes me really sad that this version of Gwen Stacy doesn't make it because, you know, she's got so much potential as an as an X-Men ally, as as someone who who is capable and accepting, especially at that time you kind of wonder what she would have grown into yeah. um, in a really terrific way. In the it, oh, I'm no, sorry. go ahead. I was going to say, in the podcast with uh, with Sarah Brunstad, we took time to delve into Craven the Hunter's connection to the X-Men over the years. I'm going to delve into the soap opera of Spider-Man for just a second. Gwen Stacy eventually will be killed by Norman Osborn or the Green Goblin, as we mentioned earlier. His Whoa, Spoilers. Well, yeah, it's 50 years old. It's all right. Uh, his son, Harry, then becomes the Green Goblin and goes mad. There's all this crazy history. There's a really controversial storyline told years later in the early 2000s where they try to do a big old series reveal that the Green Goblin or Norman Osborn fathered children through Gwen Stacy, who was like barely 18. And she ends up having twins. Uh, named Gabriel and Sarah, who have a rapid aging complex. So within a few years, they're now teenagers and they become villains. It's a very controversial and uncomfortable story that only recently in the comics, but just within the last couple of years, it was revealed that that never happened, that these were constructs created by the chameleon and Mysterio in kind of a complicated plot to, uh, to get Peter. These characters become the demon guy Kindred, in Nick Spencer's Spider-Man. It's it's really complicated and uh, it's it's not worth spending a lot of time on, but the X-Men do not own the monopoly on intense soap opera. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very intense. The Kingpin who appears here is not someone who faces the X-Men often. He's most prominently featured in X-Men volume 262 through 64, which is kind of when the X-Men team up with Shang-Chi and they're going for the Elixir Vitae. For those of you that know that story, it's really beautiful. Uh, he's appeared a I don't know, a dozen or so times in various capacities in X-Men books, most notably in places where you probably haven't read much, like uh, Wolverine and the Punisher Damaging Evidence, which is a series. Uh, he shows up in Savage Wolverine, Dark Wolverine, X-23, Iron Fist Wolverine, and Devil's Reign X-Men as well. So not places that you would tend to look for this character. The Green Goblin has faced the X-Men a number of times as well, most prominently when Secret Invasion ended and Norman Osborn kind of was the one that killed the, the Skrull Queen. He then gets control of the whole government, right? So the, all of the Dark Reign stuff in the comics had Norman Osborn directly behind it. So he's the one that forms the Dark X-Men. He had Dokken as a member of his Dark X-Men or his Dark Avengers team as, as his own Wolverine. Uh, he fights the X-Men a number of times. He was also the leader of the uh, one version of the Thunderbolts, which involved the character Swordsman, who is Andre... Uh, Andreas von Strucker. So there's weird mutant connections with this character kind of over the years, but neither of them are indelibly associated with the X-Men either. So there's a little bit of continuity crash course in just a few minutes. Uh, both of these are great villains. They're great, incredible villains. Uh, Kingpin, of course, is widely associated with uh, with Daredevil, who uh, is one of my other favorite heroes. 
Uh, and uh, he's making an appearance in an upcoming Daredevil show, uh, Daredevil Born Again, uh, played by D Vincent D'Afrio, uh, who was in the Daredevil Netflix series. It was amazing. I'm really excited for the Born Again series coming up on Disney+. Plus. Uh, any comments from our panel on that kind of dense continuity dump? <laughs> well, this is uh, this is probably the issue of the series that is the most dense as well, um, or most convoluted plot-wise. Uh, so the kingpin is a major part of this story, but we don't we haven't actually seen the kingpin revealed yet. Right. Um, he is behind. He is the person who who called Norman um, and let and tipped him off that there would be that um, that. Uh, 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 that Leclerc was um, was possibly going to uh, to turn on him, and that he should be at this football game, um, but that's not all clear at this moment. We have like in this issue, we have like four different plots uh, crashing in together. Uh, crashing in together. Uh, one thing about this uh, about the series is, despite the fact that the um, the villains wear costumes and. Uh, you know, uh, are, are ridiculous in their trademark ways is that this is uh, more of a crime noir story uh, full of blackmail and crooked cops and um, plots and schemes within schemes, um, which is very, um, very different than what you might expect from uh, from a story featuring Spider-Man characters and the X-Men and this many explosions. Um, but this is probably the, uh, the biggest junction of all of those and the... Uh, probably the, uh, the the hardest the uh, most difficult the plot is to, to keep track of yeah that was one of the things I really liked about it um you know that that it was a very uh, it was a deep plot but all the pieces fit together so well and I think that was part of the reason why um I think sometimes those cameos like we have here with the x-men feel a little bit gratuitous. You know, like you're just throwing them in because you like them, which I have done. Let's admit it. I've done it. I really wanted to write X, so I did. Um, but, you know, they have a very clear reason for being there. Um, they have a very clear purpose for what they do. And it doesn't at all rob one of her um, of her agency, of her ability to make decisions that affect the story. Um, so I. I really, really appreciated that from a from a writer's point of view. How difficult that is. Um, Chris, I've referenced this on the pod a few times, but back when I worked on the Marvel handbooks, I would read all incoming scripts so that I could see what was coming out two or three months in advance. And I, I got to this kind of crash course in comic book scripting. And Christos Gage was always one of my favorite writers. You see this series, as an example, pitched as a five-issue series. And when you have a five-issue series, you've got to have the intro, the build, the mystery. And this is the big action issue before everything wraps up and we get all the satisfying stuff in number five. Uh, he's a master of his craft. I know the, all three of you are incredible novelists. And there's a lot of incredible writers and artists I've got to feature on this pod, but I really do love uh, Christos Gage's writing very much. Uh, he does a good job when you, uh, it, it teaches you like, are, are you writing an ongoing? Is it a one shot? How many pages do you get? How do you build that arc in? And here's, you know, this is the issue where Gwen has her big loss. And then in the next issue has to resolve everything uh, with the big mystery of the Kingpin's involvement still to come in number five. Yeah, great job. It's, it's, it's a good solid read. I'm pretty happy with it. Um. <clears throat> The X-Men appearance is kind of gratuitous, but I like that even though it is, they still used it to 
further develop Gwen's character with that exchange with Jean. Like it could have just been, oh, they use their powers and they fight the Green Goblin and then they take off because they didn't find Spider-Man and, and all of that does happen. But that just that one exchange, you all of a sudden learn a lot more about Gwen and it deepened her character so and it wouldn't have happened because you know she's it's not like she's running into mutants every day right so um i think if you're going to bring in characters gratuitously that it needs to be in service of the plot and it was done that way here so i appreciated that in the early 90s marvel did a giant like summer event called acts of vengeance and the whole point was to take characters and put them against other characters villains so uh you know when you're reading books as a kid you you're thinking like how come daredevil doesn't fight magneto and how come the x-men don't fight green goblet and why isn't spider-man you know like you, you wonder where uh what spider-man versus dormammu should happen so this is one of those moments where you get to see the x-men fight green goblet and Iceman says you're fucking ridiculous and it's great <laughs> like i i as a fan i love those moments where we can mix the universe pot together a little bit and just see what shakes out uh, well, at the end, they say, "This is a Gwen, oops, this is a Gwen St uh, Stacy story. We're out." <laughs> yeah, we better run off. We got to give the spotlight back to Gwen. Uh, this was a delight to connect with three people that I admire and respect, and that I'm huge fans of. I had a great time reading all of your books. Uh, Marcy, the most recent, of course, being a Sisters of Sorcery, which was just wonderful. We got to delve into Alpha Flight and Margali Sardos today, which is uh, which is just so fun. Uh, and thank you for letting us pick your brain. Uh, I, uh, I am thrilled to, uh, to welcome all of you and hope to have you back on the show again sometime because you're wonderful. Um, as we are wrapping up, recognizing we are putting this episode out around December 8th, uh, let us know what we might have to look forward to coming out from you if you can announce anything. And uh, where can people find you online, <laughs> assuming that <laughs> everything is still intact in, uh, in our social media world as we're moving forward? Um, to plug Green Malkin Lane, the next episode after this is going to feature, if everything goes as planned, uh, the incredible writer Danny Lore, and we're going to be delving into the issue X-Men Origins Beast Number 1, where we get to delve into the childhood and origins of Hank McCoy and talk about the ridiculous Conquistador, which we'll get to uh, next time. Uh, the next Patreon episode coming out right around this time is focused on the character, uh, the horror character Scarecrow with the incredible writer Clay McCloud Chapman. Uh, who some of you may recognize uh, on this podcast. We got to do an incredible episode about Blastar with him, which was so much fun. Uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane on Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. And uh, feel free to message me anytime. I'm always happy to say hi. Uh, we'll go in the same order as the intros as we're doing our outros. Uh, Marcy, Tristan, and then Carrie, please. Well, first I want to say thanks for having me. It's always a delight. Um, you are wonderful and it was so nice to meet Tristan and of course I love Carrie to death so not actual to death but you know <laughs> it's fine um, I'll come back as a zombie well mutants can be resurrected now Carrie you're gonna be fine <laughs> there we go there we go um you can find me Marshila Rockwell I have a website marshilarockwell.com um I'm still on Twitter I haven't uh jumped the ship yet so it's Marcy Rockwell there, and um, also Marcy Rockwell on Instagram. Um, I do have a Mastodon account now, but I really don't like that um, platform very much, so I don't know if I'm going to stick with that. 
Um, I have a link tree uh, on my uh, Twitter bio. So everywhere that I am, you can find me there. Um, I know a bunch of people are migrating to Hive, so I might do that. I don't know. The whole world is falling apart, so who knows? Um, you can send me uh, messenger pigeons if you like. Um, <clears throat> I don't actually have anything new coming out. Um, I did just win a Risling Award for a poem of mine um, called Reservation Fairy Tales. 101 final exam. Um, it's actually written in the form of a multiple choice test. Uh, and it's about uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two spirit, and um, trans uh, people, which is a huge epidemic, uh, a little bit bigger in Canada than it is here, but all of our northern states deal with it. Uh, and all of our states do, but it's, it hits more along the um, imaginary border between Canada and the U.S. And uh, it was it was really uh, an honor for me to win that award, especially during uh, Native American Heritage Month. And uh, it means even more to me to kind of bring the issue out in light of what happened in Colorado Springs on the Trans Day of Remembrance because I have a transgender daughter and I just want this world to be safe for her and, and for everybody. So do better, people. <laughs> That's it. Thanks. This is a massive tone shift. Uh, thank you ever for everything you just shared. And I can't wait to, wait to read your poem. But as we're talking, I'm just noting uh, Marcy's incredible husband, who's also a wonderful comic book writer. Jeffrey Marriott is writing in the background. You can't see, see her cameras. And Tristan's cat has been licking her private parts, <laughs> legs spread on the couch for a good five minutes. And I keep laughing. So. The last time I saw her, she was curled up asleep. And then I looked over my shoulder <laughs> 10 seconds before you, uh, before you said that. Marcy's sharing all this wonderful content and I'm just, <laughs> you know, I kept laughing and I wanted to explain why. So that's, uh, that's why. <laughs> Let me turn it over to Tristan next. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, sorry about my cat. <laughs> she closed her legs now. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it is worth, uh, I think, reiterating that uh, we are recording this on November 21st, so when this comes out 20 years from now and a few weeks from now, um, uh, the, some of these may not be operable, but um, I am maintaining a, a small presence on Twitter. Um, just this past, uh, past weekend, there are reports that uh, somewhere between 50 to 80 percent of the already reduced um, cut by half workforce at Twitter um, has resigned. So I don't know if that platform will still be there when this comes out. Nobody does. Um, it will, um, if you can find me there at, uh, at Tristan Palmgren, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, P as in Peter, A-L-M-G-R-E-N. But uh, I'm mostly going to be doing professional things like book announcements there, um, so long as, as, as this industry kind of requires a presence there. Um, for more uh, more active social media, you can find me uh, via Mastodon uh, at Tristan Palmgren at wandering.shop, which is a nice little science fiction fantasy focused uh, instance for writers. 
Um, I may be on others by the time this comes out, but um, I will have links to all of those on my websites and different uh, different social media profiles. So um, I may stop finally dragging my feet and get on Instagram, for instance. So um, the future, uh, future people who have lived through so much more than we have now, um, if you if, find me somewhere and I will have links to, uh, to, to my other places, whatever has happened between, uh, uh, between now and then. And thank you as always for, for, for hosting us, Chad. This is always, always delightful. Thank you, my friend. And then Carrie. Uh, yeah, like everybody else, I'm, I'm on Twitter at the moment that future may change. Um, but I'm, C-A-R-R-H-A-R-R, Car-Har on Twitter. Um, if that happens to go away, uh, right now I'm using my backup as my Instagram, uh, Carrie Harris Books. And I figure wherever I migrate from there, I'll just uh, you know announce one of those two places um, if that becomes necessary. Um, <clears throat> in terms of what's coming up next, I actually have uh, my first short comic. Um, I'm in the, thank you, I'm, a, I'm in the um, negative space anthology. I said this year was going to be my year to break into comics. And um, it's just a short one, but it's just the beginning. And I'm so excited. It's about a woman who has creator imposter syndrome and the poltergeists who help her get over it. I love all three of your beautiful brains, and I'm a huge fan of each of yours. I'm so honored to call you all my friends. Thank you for the gifts of your time and talents today. Uh, I believe, if everything goes right, Carrie Harris and I are going to be recording a Patreon episode together uh, shortly for release in December, uh, all about Kitty Pride's parents, uh, which is uh, going to be a wonderful, but also a little trauma dense. Because <laughs> there's, there's some sad stories. <laughs> what I specialize in, so that's okay. I We keep shifting back and forth between ridiculous and trauma dense on this podcast. It's, just, it's the, the two poles that I keep bouncing back and forth between. All right, everybody. Hey, thank you so much. We will see you back here next time on uh, Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.